the argument that Alvin Plantinga makes, by the way, my, when I went to school, I got my bachelor's degree, my professor, my philosophy professor was obsessed with Alvin Plantinga. He loved Alvin Plantinga. He wanted us to read everything from Alvin Plantinga. Every class we were tearing apart syllogisms and arguments that Alvin Plantinga had given. And so when he came out with this book, it was by far the most readable thing I had ever read from Alvin Plantinga because all he ever gave us were these like really hard to follow arguments, uh, excerpts from his larger uh, articles and stuff. So what is this book about? This book is about naturalism, evolution, and whether or not it is friendly to science. So one of the things he says is that um, he says, everybody today seems to think for some reason that naturalism and evolution is friendly to science. That if naturalism is true, then that's pro-science. And that Christianity is opposed to science. And what he actually says in this book is that everything is the opposite of what you think. He says, he says in this book that Christianity has a superficial problem with science and actually a deep agreement with science. And then he says that evolution has a superficial friendliness to science, but that it actually has a deep conflict with science. And he says that if you think more about Christianity, the more you understand about Christianity, the more you will understand that it undergirds, makes science possible, makes knowledge possible. And the more that you understand naturalism and evolution, the more reason you have to not believe in science. Because if you evolved your mental abilities to know things, then you actually didn't evolve the mental capacity to understand truth, but rather to survive. We didn't develop our minds given evolution. Our minds don't exist so that we can know truth, but so that we can survive. And so whenever we have a thought passed through our heads, given evolution, he says, all we know is that we are thinking a thought that will help us to survive from an evolutionary perspective, but not necessarily truth that we can know. There's not necessarily a correspondence between the truth of the world around us and the thoughts that we have or the ideas that we have. And he basically, he goes really deep on that. He has some great quotes from Darwin. I'm going to read one to you just because I like quoting Darwin. <laughs> Actually, I'm just kidding. I never quote Darwin. <laughs> Here, here's, a, here's a good quote from Darwin. Uh, With me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would any of us trust the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? And he's saying that's a horrid doubt that sits with him. If, if I got my mind or share a common ancestor with monkeys, then why would I think that my thoughts and my ideas are more reliable? And, and he's right. <laughs> he's actually on the right page there. So great book, but you do have to enjoy a little bit of analytic philosophy. You have to enjoy a little bit of analytic logic, just a little bit. Um, but it is a very readable book, and uh, I will just commend it to you, and uh, I'll send it around. You all can take a look at it. Yeah? So if I read that book and I love it, and I decide to pick up everything else I was planning to get ever wrote, is it all going to be really good and helpful? Some of, the, some of Alvin Plantinga's arguments uh, in favor of theism are really funky. They are actually logically sound. If you just want to hear logically sound arguments for the uh, against atheism, planning is really good for that. 
But he also uses some bizarro arguments of some weird hypothetical views of the universe to talk about the possibility of God's existence, things that I probably wouldn't direct everybody to. So I love this book, but I'm not actually recommending everything planning our rights. So, yeah. What era of humanity up to 2022 is this man out of? Oh, he's really recent. Yeah, I, I recently saw a news story where uh, his uh, air conditioner froze over and the Grand Rapids News uh, came to his house and used him as an example of why you need to do a checkup on your air conditioner every year. So it was just funny seeing Alvin Planning on the news talking about his air conditioner and you're like, you guys are talking to Alvin Planning. You could talk to him about more important things than air conditioners, but you know, whatever. <laughs> So there it is. So that, that book recommendation, Where the Conflict Really Lies, probably my favorite book just on if you just want to just embarrass evolution, a naturalistic evolution, then, then that's the book for you. Um, so last week, Micah declined to use the bell. I, I get it. All right. Not very cool. Uh, you had trouble getting everybody in here, though. I could tell. <laughs> um, but, but, but I watched from home, and the bell would have been very helpful. So anyway, I, I won't criticize your teaching style anymore, Micah. Yeah. But I would have done it differently. So, so he talked about Jonah. Uh, we already talked to you about Nahum, which is the, the, uh, the official sequel to Jonah. And you know we found out sort of what actually happened to Nineveh uh, in that, um, under that book. But now we've got four more books left, and... When I was teaching this class at Bellhaven, I burned through the last four books of the Bible. I just was like, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, let's do it all in one class. Well, I was kind of going to do that today. And, well, we ended the service really late. Some preacher decided to go really long uh, and just steal your fellowship time away. And uh, so I think that I should pay the price for that, which is we're going to not be able to finish all four books of the Old Testament this week. My plan is... That once we finish the Old Testament, we're just going to move straight into the New Testament. We'll talk about the intertestamental period, what happened between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. Um, But we're going to first get through the Old Testament first. So we'll see how far we get today. Um, I want to begin with the book of Zephaniah. Um, The last four books of the Old Testament are so fun to say. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you memorize your Old Testament books, they're really fun to say. So I'm sad that I'm not doing all four today, but we'll see how far we get. So the first, first book I want us to talk about is Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah is the only prophet with a lengthy genealogy. You notice in verse 1 of Zephaniah, uh, he's Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So some of these guys, we don't know who they are. We don't know when they lived. We don't know much at all. Joel, we're just guessing when he lived. But Zephaniah, well, you know who his family is. You know that he's actually a member of the royal family. Who do you recognize here that's a member of the royal family? Yeah, you see Hezekiah right there. Um, He's a descendant of King Hezekiah, member of the royal family. Um, This is somebody who would have observed... The corrupt leadership, uh, corrupt leadership of Israel firsthand, wouldn't he? Um, he ministers during Josiah's reign. So that would have been, uh, Josiah's reign is 640 to 609 during that period of time. 
Um, again, what is he doing? He's overlapping with the time period that we've spent the last few books in. So we're sort of uh, in this moment where he's very close to the deportation to Babylon. You'll notice a lot of prophetic activity happening around the time of the deportation. Um, God is speaking. He's speaking vigorously. He's speaking voluminously to Israel. He wants them to understand what's coming. He wants them to understand why. He's interpreting the times for them. So what is Zephaniah doing? He's preaching against the idols of the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, they have issues of their own. You know, if you're in the southern kingdom, you might actually look at the northern kingdom and you might think, man, you know, we may be really bad, but we're not as bad as Samaria. We may be really bad, but at least we don't do false worship like those people. And the reality is the southern kingdom has all of these issues too. Um, There may be a delay on it compared to what's going on in the north, but eventually it's happening in the south as well. And so um, what, does he, what does he do? What is his main ministry? What does he primarily do in these three chapters? He is announcing the imminent foreign invasion. Here's the interesting thing. A lot of the other prophets, they tell you it's Babylon that's coming. Zephaniah doesn't do that. Zephaniah doesn't mention the name of the invaders. All he does, all he does is say that someone's going to invade. Um, one of the things that you see in the commentators on Zephaniah is they say that that's on purpose. That's actually... Not an accident. Well, of course it's not an accident. But what's the point of not mentioning the name of the invading armies? The point is this. What Zephaniah is doing is he is highlighting God's role in the invasion instead of the human role or even the role that the nation is playing. So, yeah, some nation's going to come, but why are they coming and who is sending them? That's part of what Zephaniah is doing. It's really God. God is the one that's punishing us. It's not that Babylon hates us and Babylon wants to destroy us and Babylon wants to drag us all the way and take our homes and destroy our temple and destroy our wells. It's that we have sinned against God. And that's the thing that comes out in Zephaniah. That's the thing that emerges from this, this book and just from that, the fact that they're not including the name of the invading nations. Um, so uh, outline of this, really simple. Uh, judgment on Jerusalem. Chapter 2 is judgment on the nations. And then chapter 3 is hope for Jerusalem and the nations. So uh, in, in three times, just in the first chapter, there is this theme of the day of the Lord that keeps getting raised. The day of the Lord's coming. The day of the Lord's coming. You don't get to get away with your sin forever. Eventually you'll have to answer for what you've been doing. And so three times he says the day, the great day of the Lord is near. The great day of Yahweh is near. Um, Several times there are several days of the Lord, but we talked about this when we uh, mentioned Joel, I think. Uh, We talked about the fact that there is also a great day of the Lord. There are many days of the Lord. And this is a great day of the Lord. Um, this theme just keeps emerging over and over again. It's like a drumbeat. Part of the, the point of a drumbeat is this repetition that you get it. And the drumbeat that's going on in Israel is judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's not going to be an accident when it happens. This is really God doing it. And so nothing goes unjudged. Nothing goes overlooked. God doesn't wink at sin. Um, Another theme is uh, comfort and redemption, especially you get to chapter three. If you get to chapter three, um, you actually see the, the best expression of, um, of, of uh, God's mercy to them. He says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
Um, If you want to talk about the sort of message of hope that someone needs to hear, they need to hear a word like that. But the interesting thing is these things are still happening. The judgment is still happening. You're still going to be crushed. And yet God has taken away the judgments against you. Um, Mercy in the midst of judgment. That's what, that's what scripture teaches us actually about the death of Jesus, right? It's mercy in the midst of judgment. It's Jesus being judged, us receiving mercy. Um, one other thing I want you to think about is, is in chapter 3, verse 9. Um, uh, if, you look in, if you're in your ESV Bible, I don't know which, which Bible you have in front of you, maybe ESV, but mine actually has a great heading for chapter 3, verse 9. It says, the conversion of the nations. So remember, we talked about this chapter 3 being a passage about hope for Jerusalem and the nations. Well, God has something to say to the nations, especially in verse 9. And I want you to hear what, he's, what he says here. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. When he says pure, the word pure is like singular. It's like you're going to all speak the same language is what he's saying. Um, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Um, I just want to point this out, that this is a reversal of what? Babel. It's a reversal of Babel, right? God is saying, there is, you, you guys are all divided. You're all so different. You're all so spread out. Uh, all of you are, are sort of set against each other in so many ways. And yet he says, what? I'm going to give you one language. It's go, I'm going to undo what I did at Babel. I'm going to take all these distinct people from all these different tribes and tongues and nations. I'm going to bring you all together. Um, And it's not a superficial sort of sentimental thing either that he does. It's not like, well, we're all going to sing Kumbaya and hold hands. He's telling all of these nations that in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah who's coming, all of those differences that seem to divide you and seem to separate you are going to be like nothing. Um, You know, I'm reminded of... Uh, this last year when I got to, to teach these, these uh, men and women in China and I, I had an opportunity to talk to them. And at one point when I was talking to them, I told them, you and I, because we are spiritual brothers and sisters and because we all trust in Jesus Christ together, are closer than I am some, with some of my own physical family. And that was not a sentimental thing for me to say. That was a true, absolute, real thing that is true. I'm closer to these men and women across the sea in another nation than I am with my own family. Um, that's, so when he's talking about removing these divisions of nations and languages, that's no small thing. He's talking about new creation. He's talking about taking us back even before the fall, isn't he? Um, it makes you think of Acts chapter 2. Really hard not to think of Acts chapter 2 where all of the people, what are they doing? They can hear what everybody is saying now. Um, as they're speaking in tongues, nobody's able to be confused by one another. So uh, just beautiful what Paul, what, not Paul, uh, beautiful what Zephaniah is telling us here and how those things end up coming true in the book of, of Acts. So that's Zephaniah. There's more we could probably say. It's a little book, three chapters, but there's an awful lot of beauty in here. Um, again, I would just keep in mind the repetition is intentional. The way that these themes keep coming up over and over again between these Old Testament books is no accident because obviously the same God is, in, is uh, behind these things. Uh, the same God is inspiring these texts and the same nation is being spoken to. Um, and so that's Zephaniah. <clears throat> now let's talk about Haggai. We want to talk about Bible names that just aren't catching on. 
<laughs> Need to see some more Haggai's. Um, his name comes from the word for a feast or festival. We really don't know much about him. He's very different than uh, he, he's very different than Zephaniah, who had this genealogy and he's from a royal family. Um, but that's not Haggai. Haggai is uh, contemporary of Zechariah. Ministers around 520 BC. So this is this is late. Haggai is is very late. Um, shows up several times in the Ezra narrative. So if you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, those were the books about God's people coming back from Babylon, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple. Well, that's the time period in which Haggai ministers. Um, He's talking to a people in a moment where they need prophetic activity. They need God to speak to them. And so this is a post-exile. They are back from exile. They have returned from Babylon. And here they are in this broken nation without walls and without a temple. And in this moment, they need God to speak. Uh, If you read the book of Ezra, Haggai actually shows up in the book of Ezra. Uh, He he shows up several times, so we know that he's around during that time period. Um, So the situation is Israel has returned from Babylon. They've got a mandate from Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Isn't that amazing? The secular ruler is telling them, hey, make sure you guys are building the temple. Let me give you the resources to do it. Um, And so they do. They go back and they're supposed to rebuild the temple, but it's not actually happening. It doesn't actually happen right away. What's going on? Well, they come back from exile and what do they prioritize? Does anybody remember what they prioritize instead of the temple? Building your own house. They are worried about their own houses. They say, hey, look, we can't build a temple if we don't have houses to live in. We should take care of that first. Of course, you can imagine the slippery slope in such a uh, society, right? Can't really build a temple if we don't have a good working economy. We should, all, we should all make sure that that's going first. And then you can imagine just continuing to put God on the back burner until eventually you're so practical that you get nothing done for the Lord. Um, you actually see the situation in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Haggai. He says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So uh, in some ways, this is a warning for each of us that God demands and God deserves the highest place in our lives. He deserves the highest priority in our lives. Um, I know this probably goes without saying, and yet it needs to be said that God is an important person. (laughs) Um, God is, and I do need to say this because this is America. And for a lot of people, religion is self-expression. Religion is about completing me, right? Um, It needs to be said that God is not an add-on to our lives that we just say, well, look, when I have time, I'm going to focus on you, Lord. Um, Following God is not some kind of luxury that is for those who've really got their lives together or that everything is going really good. Um, God is a true necessity of life. He is like oxygen for us. He is like water for us. He is like food for us. God is supposed to be the center of our lives. This is a big feature of the message of Haggai. Why isn't God the center of your life, Israel? And and he's being challenged and they're being challenged. Um. Really? In fact, that's, that's the main theme of Haggai. Why haven't you responded to God's call? Um, short little book, just two chapters here. Um, in Ezra 6.15, the temple is completed. It takes about four years. 
So from 520 to 516. By 516, the work is finished. Temple is done. And Haggai's message has been heeded and heard. But you can imagine, right, where this prophet is really needed, right? You need to keep speaking to the people. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Take your eyes off of you. Start remembering your God again. Um, And that's what he does. He speaks to Israel and he pushes them exactly the way that they need to be pushed. So that's, that's Haggai. Next, we have the book of Zechariah. Um, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. Um, also, maybe the most difficult of the minor prophets. Um, has some very difficult imagery to interpret. You've got the imagery of the horsemen and the chariots. You have the imagery of the rider on the red horse, the white horse, the black horse. You've got the vision of the golden lampstand, the flying scroll. Um, what do all those images have? What do you, when you think of those things, what, what book of the Bible do you think of? Revelation. Yeah, you think of Revelation. Revelation, what are they doing? They're just going back to Zephaniah and Zechariah and they're getting that imagery from there. <clears throat> You've also got some other interesting stuff. You've got the flying scroll, the woman in the basket, uh, the woman in the basket, just like a funny image, just like, I don't know, there's something funny about the woman in the basket. Um, Every single one of these images is difficult to interpret. Each of them include, has its own challenges. Um, with work, they can be understood. Um, throughout Christian histories, there's, there's not necessarily been just one uniform way of reading the symbolism of this book. Um, now, I should say, the book has a, a specific meaning. Um, we may struggle to get it, but we can understand the overall message of this book, I think, even if we struggle with some of the specifics. Um, we'll talk a little bit about some of these images here, but, um, you know, again, it's a challenging book. Um, the name Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. Uh, he's the son of Berechiah, son of Ido. Nehemiah twelve sixteen tells us that he's the head of the priestly family of Ido. Um, he served as a prophet and as a priest, ministered alongside of Haggai. So these guys are both, um, if I could use the metaphor, they're both cracking the whips on Israel. And in this time when they really need to be pushed, they need to be pushed to build. They need to be pushed to serve the Lord and not themselves. Um, So that also means that he's among the first generation to return from Babylon. Um, He's encouraging the people to complete the temple's construction in 516. That's when it gets finished. So think of Zechariah very much as like a spiritual companion to Haggai and Nehemiah. Um, These books all go together. By the way, you notice this, that when you're starting to think about the periods of time in the Old Testament, when there's a lot of prophetic activity, it tends to be clustered, doesn't it? You've got a lot of clusters around the fall of the Northern Kingdom. You've got clusters of prophetic activity around the fall of the Southern Kingdom. And then you have clusters of prophetic activity upon the return from Babylon. All of these moments when they're really decisive for the life of Israel. And what does God do? He says, I'm going to flood you with prophecy. I'm going to speak to you so that nobody has to wonder what God thinks in this situation. And so that's exactly what he does here. He speaks through Zechariah. In uh, chapter 1, Zechariah challenges the people, turn back to God. Don't be like your ancestors. Don't be like those people who came before, who fell under my judgment and got dragged away to Babylon. He says, you guys have a new start. You have a new beginning. You have a new opportunity. And so when he speaks to the people, they respond. 
um, they, they initially, at least, it says that they repented in verse 6. But then what happens? Well, then Zechariah goes to sleep. He has a vision. Uh, he has a dream. And his dreams are about as weird as your dreams and my dreams. Sometimes my kids will wake up and they'll tell me their dreams. And there's this old joke in my house. That there's nothing more boring than listening to other people's dreams. Uh, that's just because their dad is mean. <laughs> I'm just mean. <laughs> but it's the old joke, and now I can't outrun it. So my wife always tells them, oh, you know your dad. He thinks that dreams are the most boring thing ever. Well, Zechariah has some pretty wild dreams. Um, very symbolic. Uh, just let me talk about a few of these visions that he has. Um, you have this vision of the four horsemen that comes up here at the beginning, um, representing God's watch over the world, his sovereignty over the world. Um, You know, horsemen move quickly. They have information. They have knowledge. They're able to gain it quickly. They're able to move from one place to another rapidly. The idea here is that God is aware of what's going on in the world. These four horsemen represent that. Um, You have the image of the four horns, the four blacksmiths, um, also in chapter one. Um. The idea of the four horns and the four blacksmiths is that Israel suffers under Babylon and Persia. That's sort of what the horns and the blacksmiths are. Um, and yet, like the woman uh, in the basket in chapter 5, what happens? They get carried away by the horns and the blacksmiths. You know, they end up being swept away by Persia and Babylon. Um, if it doesn't get through uh, plainly enough, the idea is that God is in charge. God is in charge of all of these nations. He's in charge of all of these rulers. He's in charge of Cyrus. He's in charge of of everybody. Um, You have other imagery here that is not always easy to understand. You have the measuring of Jerusalem. You have the flying scroll in chapter 5. Part of what I think you want to understand about those those images is they make the point that the new Jerusalem is going to be a place that all the nations come into. The measuring of Jerusalem and the flying scroll both make this idea, uh, point this idea out that the nations are coming into God's kingdom, that the nations are coming in, that they're going to be part of Jerusalem. But here's the interesting thing also, at the same time, Jerusalem is not going to be the center of the universe. Um, that was what got Stephen killed in Acts chapter 7, right? Stephen is saying, as much as it is important as it is for people to come into Christ, it's not this physical city that people are coming into. So don't be so fixated on this city and on this temple. Instead, the city and the temple are symbolic of God's kingdom. Uh, but the whole world is going to become the city and the whole world is going to become the temple. Um, that's the beautiful thing. All these people from different tribes and tongues and nations are coming into Jerusalem and not physically to the land of Israel. Um, pretty important. Chapter three, we have the story of Joshua, the high priest with the filthy clothing. Does anyone, has anyone read the R.C. Sproul book, The Priest with the Filthy Clothes? I think it's a great, I, I love that story. It's actually the most comprehensible story in all of Zechariah. Um, you know, you have this narrative about Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing for the angel of God and, and Satan is accusing him and he's pointing at him and he's, and he's pointing out that he's, he's standing there in these filthy garments and he's representing Israel and he's standing there representing Israel as this nation with all this history of sin and all of this rebellion that they've committed and yet, what does God do? What does God do with Joshua? He takes away his filthy clothes and he gives him a new garment, doesn't he? Um, again, it's more comprehensible than some of the other narratives, you know? 
the woman in the basket may mean several things, but when you see, when you see Joshua receive this, the new clothing and the white clothing and you see him being dressed and, and cared for by God, there, there's not a lot of question as to what God is doing. He's telling us, I'm going to wash Israel and I'm going to dress them in my own righteousness, which is something, of course, that gets fulfilled in Jesus. Um, you know, if you're faithful, you'll lead God's people. You'll become a symbol of the Messiah who's coming. Those are like, it's almost like that's what God is saying to Joshua. Um, and then the book kind of concludes with Zechariah challenging the people. You should be part of God's kingdom. You should be participating in what God is doing. And that's the call that goes out. Now, Zechariah, there's a lot, are a lot of themes that you could, that you could draw out of Zechariah. I'm just going to mention a, a few. One of them is the priority of God. Because remember, in Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, all of them are very focused on this rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, but also, there's something that's missing if all you think is that Israel just needs these physical walls. They need a moral reformation. They need a spiritual reformation. Um, there, are spiritual, there is spiritual weakness in the land where the people are intermarrying with those who don't know the Lord. They're being overcome again by the temptation to follow after other gods. And that has to be dealt with too. You build up all these physical walls. You could even build the temple. And yet if the hearts of the people are bad, you're going to go through the exact same thing that you just went through with Babylon. You're just going to get dragged off again. You're going to go through the same suffering, the same problems that you did the last time. And so Zechariah is really focused on rebuilding the souls of the people. And in fact, he's critical of the people who think that political maneuvering is going to give the health and the success that they think they need, right? Um, he says this in chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about people who just think, well, let's be practical, Let's be pragmatic. Let's make sure that we have political power and authority so that we're going to have the sort of life that we need. Um, in other words, people are wanting to make their own health and make their own success. And, and God is critical of this. He says, only by my spirit. You're not focused on spiritual reformation. You're focused on things and stuff and power. And he says, that's not what this is. This, that's, that's not what God wants the people to be focused on. And I think you could definitely have some modern applications for something like this. It is very easy for Christians to get their minds fixated on politics and power. Very fixated on thinking, if only we had somebody in authority who thought like us and did everything the way we want, if only we had authority and power, then we would be safe. Then we would be secure. And I think you know, you need to hear a word like what God says here, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So that also means that worldly, um, you know, we look at worldly circumstances, we look at worldly events, political events in our world, and we need to be very careful that we don't always take that as the measure of spiritual health. Sometimes those things don't line up either. Um, I remember 2016, after Trump was elected, there was a woman in my church, very elated. She said, There's a, she said there is a revival going on, and this election is, is how I know that. And I talked to somebody else not too much later, and they were very distressed. They said, see, we're in spiritual decline. Uh, two people look at the exact same thing, and they see two very different things. And to me, when I looked at it, I said, well, this just seems to be an argument against looking at world events as indicators of spiritual revival. 
that the world events aren't indicators of spiritual revival necessarily. Um, we need to be very careful that we not let politics become the, 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 uh, the opiate of the people, right? Um, that's what Marx says, right? Marx goes, Marx looks at religion and he says, ah, oh, look, religion is the opiate of the masses. That's how you keep people uh, subdued. You keep them focused on religion. And I think the real message today probably is actually politics is the opiate of the masses. It keeps us all very much subdued. It keeps us forgetting about God. Um, so anyway, uh, plenty there to offend everybody, I guess. But, um, <clears throat> but when we... Um, but here's what happens, though. Christians can be tempted to neglect the soul. We can be neglected to tempt the soul. To, uh, we be tempted to neglect the soul and think because we're doing politics, then we're really achieving something. And, and and sometimes I think we need to be reminded that God put us here to spread the gospel and tell others about salvation in Christ um, and the building of an earthly kingdom. That's something God can do on His own. But we need to make sure that we fulfill our calling and the thing that He put us here to do. Um, we have neighbors that don't know who Jesus is. And oftentimes we're happy to go around and tell them who we want them to vote for, but we're nervous to invite them to church. Um, we need to just let that speak to us. And if we're guilty, we need to just confess it to the Lord. Not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, God says through Zechariah. Um, revival is accompanied by repentance. Um, revival is accompanied by putting our hope in the Lord, not in princes or chariots or horses. Um, that doesn't mean we're indifferent to the world around us. It doesn't mean that we don't care what happens in the world around us. But it does mean that we remember where the life is and we remember where the life isn't. And that helps us to, be, to stay rooted. It helps us to not spin off into circles. You know, there's going to be probably talk about elections now in another year or two. Uh, one of my things I'm jealous of as a pastor is to make sure that we don't get so caught up in things that we forget the Lord. Um, it's way, way, way easier to, to let that happen than we might be tempted to think. So, <clears throat> But my voice is disappearing and it's 1215. So let me just close this in prayer and then we'll talk about uh, Malachi. Uh, we'll talk about Malachi next class and then we'll do the intertestamental period and then maybe we'll start on New Testament the next week. How's that sound? Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you help for us to remember this place where you have sent us, oh God. You have sent us to this city. Uh, you have sent, this, sent us to this city where we live. And you have told us to seek the good of the city where you have placed us. And so on the one hand, we do care very much about the world we live in. At the same time, oh God, help us not to make an idol of it. Help us instead to remember, oh God, that this is a place where we live in, in a city with many people that you care about, oh God. You are the creator and you made these men and women and boys and girls in your image. And many of them do not know their left hand from their right hand. And so Lord, would you help for us to be used by you to share the gospel with the men and women, boys and girls who so very much need it. Help us to be good representatives of you. Help for us to remember why you have placed us here and help us to remember also why you have not placed us here. We ask that you would help for us to be instructed by your word, O oh God. Help us not to be instructed by our own imaginations. Instead, let us listen to you. Help us to be ready to live for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.